0: Hey, happy Easter. Welcome to Awakening. We're absolutely thrilled to have you join us. My name's Ryan, and let's get to that. So there's a tradition down through the church uh, when we greet one another. It's uh, not only on Easter, by the way, uh, historically in the church, but especially on Easter, that there's this call and response where you say, He is risen, and then say, He is risen indeed. Oh, some of you know it. Good. Okay. Uh, So let's try that out. He is risen. He is risen. Wow, that's very good. So unanimous. It's very nice. Uh, I don't know if you got here early, but we had a big Easter egg hunt. It was phenomenal. It had all the, the little toddlers and babies running around tackling each other for Easter eggs and then the bigger kids. And I love it. In fact, one of my things like when it comes to the Easter egg hunt is I think every kid should like walk out with a massive amount of Easter eggs. And we kind of have this discussion every year because I'm like, no, 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 we need thousands of eggs because I don't want a kid walking out with like five, ten, not on Easter. You should have like this mountain of candy that you take home to your parents and torture them with. But I thought this year it would be great if we didn't just reserve the Easter egg hunt for the kids. Like, why do the kids get all the fun, right? Right? And so this year, what we did is we had uh, someone go around and tape $20 bills to 10 shares in this room. And so on the count of three, don't do it yet, on the count of three, look, we'll see who the winner is, right? Three, two, one, go. It also happens to be April Fool's Day. (laughs) No fools! That was good. That was good. I actually I saw a couple of you. You're like, there ain't no twenty dollar bill. There ain't no twenty dollar bill. Now, here's what I think is interesting. However, just a little shift of conversation is if we're honest, some of you walked in the door when it comes to God, when it comes to spirituality, maybe when it comes especially to religion feeling like maybe God played an April Fool's on you. Maybe that's how you walked in, is just feeling tricked, fooled, feeling a bit like it's a a hoax or a sham. I I don't know. It's this whole idea, like, if there is a God out there, I haven't experienced him. If there is a God out there, I prayed, and he didn't answer. If there is a God out there, and it just kind of feels like sometimes you feel like maybe God played And April fools on us. And yet, here's the thing I find, is that we're constantly still asking this question. And it's just kind of this undercurrent, because there's this internal longing. Whether you're, you know, consider yourself religious or not, spiritual or not, is, what is God really like? Like, like, honestly, I mean, is he distant? Is he present? Is he angry? Is he is he this like mean guy in the you know heavens that like loves to play whack-a-mole? You know what I mean? Like he just wants to beat you. Boom, boom, boom. I think sometimes that's the picture we get. Or maybe he's this grandfather that just kind of hangs up there and is wimpy and can't really do anything. But he's just this kind of nice figure. But we, we wrestle with this. Like, what is God really like? And here's what I'd like to suggest this morning, because I think this is going to be incredibly powerful for many of you. I'd like to suggest that actually religion has played a little April Fool's on us. That it's religion that has this cruel joke on humanity. Because if you you think about religion, per se, and some of you are like, I'm in a church and he's saying religion. Yeah, stay with me, all right? But if you think about religion, Religion says basically that God is this cosmic force in the universe. God is this, you know, to this angry, just God to be appeased, and you're working your way to somehow satisfy this God. Or or there's a little other angle on it where it's God is this genie right? You know, and so if I just get the secret handshake right with God, then I can make God do what I want. If I can just maybe magical words, or and it's for some, that's your prayer life. I, I'm sorry, but like you're trying to kind of get the cadence just right, and maybe God hears you, and then he'll answer you, but God is distant, removed from you. What if? What if God is nothing like the God of religion? You know, religion tells us that that God, like loves the super spiritual people, right? that that special club, that inner circle, and and then God really doesn't like anybody else. Could it be that the God that you have pictured in your mind looks nothing like God at all? Um, I love this quote by Fleming Rutledge. It's an incredibly profound book. however, it is, really thick. And so if you're a reader, it's like your book. If you're not a reader, just take the quote. The quote will be, it's, it's worth its weight. She writes this. She says, it is the crucifixion that the nature of God is truly revealed. It's the crucifixion, it's the cross where we get a picture of the nature or the character of what God is like. Here's what she's saying. If we really want to know what God is like, we need to look at the cross. If we're going to understand the power and the beauty of Easter Sunday, by the way, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, and this is the Super Bowl of our faith, we'll get to that. But if we're going to understand the power and beauty of Sunday, Easter Sunday, we have to first begin with Good Friday. So what is God like? Let's begin with Friday. Imagine if you will, it's Friday. Sabbath begins at sundown. Jerusalem is a buzz. It's a festival environment. Hundreds of thousands of people gather on to this city and converge to celebrate Passover. I mean, it is just an incredibly powerful time. It's Passover week, and Passover is a central celebration in Judaism. It's the celebration of remembering how God supernaturally delivered their ancestors from the bondage of slavery. It's Friday. Everybody's gathered and traveled from afar to be in Jerusalem to celebrate their victorious God who delivered them. And then there's Rome. Now, Rome is the power. Rome is strategically, on this Friday, executing criminals by crucifixion outside the city walls. It's an in-your-face reminder to this celebrating community. It's an in-your-face reminder of Rome's dominance and their subservience. Think about this. Imagine, if you will, you're celebrating the God that delivered you out of oppression from Egypt. And in that moment, Rome's saying, hey, I just want to remind you who's the boss. And so we're going to execute some criminals. Now, crucifixion, I, I think we miss it a little bit because it's such a symbol of religion, of all things, not a torture tool. Crucifixion, by the way, was the lowest and most despised way to die in the ancient day. Only slaves or rebels to Rome were executed via crucifixion. In fact, it was such a looked-down-upon event that people wouldn't even talk about it. Like you wouldn't even just kind of bring it up at the water cooler at work. It was bad etiquette, bad form to, to mention it in public. You might talk about it in a whisper, especially if the person you knew was crucified. And yet, when there was crucifixions, inevitably people came they came out, they got. It, it was uh, the, the culture in the environment there, to whoever was being crucified, it's, it's the most uh, dehumanizing act. As you are nailed to a cross, beaten and bruised, and completely naked exposed before everyone for hours and hours on end, and the, and the play that people would do is they would come To this moment of these humans stripped of their dignity and they would ridicule them relentlessly, mocking, hurling insults. It's Friday, Passover, and once more, Rome is flexing its power and strength. And this Friday is unique. Because the religious powers at B seize a strategic opportunity to eliminate a threat. They look around and, and there's a threat to their power. There's a threat to their influence. There's a threat to their religious structure that they have created that has kept all the, quote, right people in and all the wrong people out. There's an unorthodox rabbi. You know him. I know him by the name of Jesus. He showed up on the planet, and he began to do these incredible miracles, these wonders that were blowing people away. And people flocked by the thousands, by the way, just flocked out by the thousands. Many came to be healed themselves or just to watch the miracle worker do his magic. But the wonders weren't the threat to the religious leaders. The wonders weren't the issue at all. It was his teaching. It was his way of life. That was the problem. He was the problem to the religious leaders. See, because Jesus wasn't trying to somehow amend the religious system. He didn't show up on the planet and said, hey, guys, you got it a little bit off. You, you just need a couple tweaks. If we just adjust this and adjust this, then we can fix it. No, he went in, and he turned over tables in the temple saying, it's all wrong. We're flipping the table. Hello. Hello. See, religious people, this is is interesting about religious people. Religious people are really concerned with who they're surrounded by. You ever notice that? It's the us more, us for and no more, the holy huddle, right? Like they're really afraid of what someone else will think if they're seen with the wrong people. You ever seen that? Like, they're incredibly concerned that someone else might misunderstand what they're doing, and so they're very careful to make sure everyone knows why they're doing what they're doing in this self-righteous stance. Religious people, by the way, this is so funny, have this concept of other people, the other wrong people, if you will, that their sin, their shame, their filthiness, it just kind of like, it could somehow rub off on them. And so they just keep their distance. They just kind of keep them at arm's way. But here was the problem with Jesus. This is one of the main reasons why Jesus was crucified. When he showed up on the planet, he wasn't concerned with those who surrounded him. In fact, he was in such a way, he wasn't afraid of other people misunderstanding him. He he wasn't afraid that the people that were walking up to him and surrounding him, somehow their badness, their filthiness would somehow rub off on him. In fact, this is incredible. On more than one occasion, this began to become his reputation. It said that tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. All the wrong people. Tax collectors. We're coming up on tax time. I'll leave that one alone sinners, the people who are outside the religious circle of rightness, the people that the religious people look down upon, talk down about, despised, shunned, were surrounding Jesus. And when religious people saw this, when the religious people understood what was happening, they see this wonder worker doing these things and gaining in momentum. And as he gains momentum, what do you get when you have momentum? Power. Now they're threatened. As they're looking at what's happening with Jesus, it says this about the religious people. It says that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. That's a great word, right? Muttered. Can you mutter? Can you, like, someone just give me an example? Anybody mutter? Fine, it's Easter. You don't have to play with me. That's whatever. They muttered. This man, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. It's a profound statement because the religious way, was not to welcome sinners, but to shun them. The religious way was not to eat with sinners, but to despise them. The religious way was not to to somehow love sinners, but was to shame them, not to invite them in, but to ostracize them. That was the religious way. And yet Jesus shows up on the planet and all the wrong people are flocking to him like a moth to a flame. Like they're just drawn because he's up to something completely different. The way of Jesus was that this God of religion looked nothing like the way of Jesus. But Jesus is saying what he is doing, he is teaching, is actually the way of God. And so Jesus tried to explain his actions to this religious folk tried to explain what he's up to. And so he would tell stories, and we call them parables, and he'd use word pictures. He'd say things like this. It's not the healthy that need a doctor, but uh, anybody? No? Sick, yeah. It's like, okay, that's a word picture I can get my mind around. I, I've come, like my purpose on this planet, I've come to seek and save that which is lost. On one occasion, he tells a series of stories to help explain to this religious elitist group what he's up to. He actually tells three stories all with the same point that each move with more clarity and power as you go along, more poignancy of his point, to somehow describe this is what's happening, this is what I'm up to, this is what God's actually about, and you're missing it. And one of the stories is actually one of the most famous stories he ever told. And it's this context of why he told it. So he begins with a story about the parable of the lost sheep. And he says this about the parable of the lost sheep. He says, Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Cool, got 99. Good enough. is a pursuit of God. It's a working of one's way to God. That God is somehow angry, has his arms crossed, and saying, somehow you get to me, and if you don't do it all right, then you're just not right, you're wrong, you're out. And here's what Jesus is saying. He flips the paradigm. Instead of pursuing God, he says that God is actually pursuing you. That's a paradigm shift. Think about that. The God of the universe right now in this moment says, I'm in active pursuit of you. God is not shaming but rejoicing. His arms aren't crossed, but they're open wide. And he's carrying the wayward sheep home. Instead of a scolding, there's a celebration. And then he tells another story. He tells the story of the parable of the lost coin. If he can make his point with sheep, maybe a coin will work. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. Can you just say that with me real quick? Rejoice with me. Okay, we're going to try it again because like joy and rejoicing is a central part of this message about what God's doing on the planet say it again are you ready rejoice with me that's good give you a plus good job for i have found my lost coin in the same way when you've lost something precious when something valuable is missing in that same way i tell you there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who or oh, sorry, I skipped, skipped down. You know what I mean? I tell you, there's more rejoicing in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. Again, we see Jesus explain God very differently than the God of religion. Notice, a God who searches carefully. a God who says what's lost is valuable. What's lost is desired. What's lost is wanted and precious. See, what's lost is not a waste. What's lost is not a failure. I know those are the words that have been going through your head. What's lost is not dispensable. And you know what? Fine, go your own way. What's lost is precious. And God says, I want you. I'm looking intently for you. And then he tells one final story. It's the exclamation point of his point. It's the climax. Three stories repeating this powerful point. This story is the famous one that many of you probably know. It's etched its way into our history and onto the hearts of many. It's known as the parable of the prodigal son. And in it, Jesus says this. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me a share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Think about that just for a second. This morning, I had this amazing moment. I'm coming on to our campus, and my family was actually here ahead of me helping set up. And my youngest son... My youngest son, from like 50 yards out, sprints to me. He's eight years of age. See, that made my Easter, I got to tell you, man. So amazing. This boy's running to me, and his arms just embrace me. And, Dad, I love you. I'm like, oh, son, I love you. He's like, happy Easter, Dad. Oh. I think that moment. Don't miss this. That boy. And for some, you've experienced this as you watched a child walk away, reject you and everything that you stand for. I mean, just imagine the hurt and the pain of the father in this moment. The longing of the son, because here's what the son said, if you don't fully get it. Dad, I wish you were dead, because if you were dead, I'd get what you have. Since you're not looking like you're going to die anytime soon, can I get it now? Thank you very much. And the pain and the heartache, the rejection the father feels in that moment. Well, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. He had a picture in his mind. Of what living really was. He had a picture in his mind of what everybody else was doing and what he wanted to do. The grass is greener, if you will, on the other side. Well, after he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. But no one gave him anything. The grass wasn't greener. The dream wasn't real. It was a simply a mirage on the horizon, a hoping that somehow that would satisfy, that would fulfill, and yet it just left him empty and alone. Verse 17 is one of my favorite verses in this entire story. It says this about the son as he's, as he's with The pigs in the field, destitute and alone and desperate. It says this, when he came to his senses. Mm. Love that. When he realized his error. When he realized, you know what? The grass isn't greener. In fact, it's a desert out here. When he realized that it looked good from afar, but it was far from good, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I'm starving to death. When I just examined the landscape, I wasted my, my inheritance. My dad's servants have a better life than me. I will set out, go back to my father and say to him, father. I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called a son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. He got up and headed into the direction he ran away from. To the father he rejected and whose inheritance he wasted. And his conversation along the way, and you can just imagine he's been rehearsing this the whole journey He's like, you know what? I'm not worthy to be a son. Just take me as a servant. Because I get the pain. I get the rejection. I get what I did. Maybe, Maybe you'll be gracious enough to let your son come serve. This next line is so good. It says, but while he was a long way off, while he was a dot in the distance... While he was just a blur, making his way as a seeing something. While he was a long way off. Look at this. His father saw him and filled with compassion for him, ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. His father had been looking in the direction. Think about this. How cool is this? His father's been looking in the direction that his son left day after day. Day after day. went that direction he'd peer out and stare with this with only the way a father can stare longing for his son wishing hoping desiring that one day maybe his son who's lost his son who's dead might come back and he sees this figure his parents know this you you we, we know our kids cough let alone their figure And he sees his son's figure on the horizon. He says, I, I, and I, I just had this thought, just, just bear with me. I just wonder how many times the father thought he saw his son and he ran out. You know, like he thought that's him and he ran out. Nope. He sees the figure and the hope swells. And instead of rejection, the father runs in compassion and wraps his arms around him. Instead of arms crossed, his arms are open wide to embrace. Well, the son had a speech he had been preparing and working on. And so he says, Father, I've, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And dad doesn't even let him finish. He just interrupts him. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger, the sign of sonship, and sandals on his feet, bring a fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. So they began to celebrate. I want you to notice something. (laughs) Something about the nature and the character of God. Something that that Jesus showed up on this planet to expressly reveal to us. Something that because of the God of religion we miss. That the love of the Father is greater than the rejection of the Son. That's good, so let me say it again. The love of the father is greater than the rejection of the son. The love of the father is greater than the rejection of the daughter. There's no distance you can go. There's no far away or as bad or whatever you say, wild living, whatever. The father's aim and affection, his outlook on you is he's looking to the horizon, wondering when you'll come home, not waiting to scold, but waiting to say, welcome home. Welcome home. This is the scandal of grace. Religious people can't deal with grace. Grace is God's unearned favor resting upon us. Completely undeserved. Grace is God searching. Grace is God pursuing. Grace is God embracing. And Jesus is bringing into focus the very heart of God. But it's even more than that. Because Jesus, Jesus' teaching wasn't just that he was pointing the way to God. Jesus said he was God. Jesus is saying, When you look at me, you get to see how God responds. This is, this is the reason he was crucified, the reason he was a threat. To the religious leaders. When you look at me, you get to see how God responds to the hurting. Think about this. God showed up on the planet in flesh, in the person of Jesus, and those farthest from God flocked to him. The religious people didn't know what to do with him. Like, when you look at Jesus, you get to see how God responds to the hurting. You get to see how God responds to the disenfranchised. You get to see how God responds to those who are overlooked, who are put down, who feel far away from God, who feel like God would never love them or want them. You get to see God at work and see how he loves you. And by the way, by the way, you get to see how God responds to self-righteous religious people as well when you look at Jesus. This is a God very different from the religious powers, brokers of the day. And it threatened the entire foundation of the religious elite. The irony of it all, Passover is being celebrated. Passover is that remembrance of how God lovingly pursued Israel like a lost sheep and a lost coin and a lost son. And now Jesus is saying once more, God is on the move. God is on the move in history to bring His precious ones home. The cross, the, the cross was actually from everybody's perspective that we're looking on at that moment was the final nail in the coffin, the ending of this movement. It, it wasn't this sacred image that we have today. It was despised and rejected. Crucifixion was no place for a heroic martyr, let alone God himself. No one had ever imagined in human history of a God being crucified, let alone worshiping a God that would be crucified. Jesus was led out of the city. Two others onto Skull Hill were raised up on these crosses and were crucified. The creator of the universe allowed himself to be crucified on the cross, and the religious leaders mocked. The soldiers around jeered. In fact, even one of the rebel criminals next to him hurled insults as he hung, dying a slow death. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, He said, God lets himself be pushed out of the world onto the cross. But why? There was one other criminal next to Jesus. And like the prodigal son, in the moment when he's hanging on this cross, he comes to his senses. And instead of hurling insults like everyone around, he then calls out for mercy. In fact, Luke, a doctor and a historian, says it this way, that, that one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said. Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly for what we're getting and what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Now notice this. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. Like the boldest request he could come up with in that moment because he knew his life. He knew where he'd been. And he had that religious thought of God never would want me back again. He's just remember me. Like, I don't even know what that means, and I'm not even sure it's going to do anything, but would you remember me? Like, that's the biggest request I can give. And notice this. Like the prodigal who came home to ask just to be a servant and not a son, but he calls out for mercy, this criminal got way more than he could have asked or imagined. Jesus says, today, this moment, you will be with me in paradise. Tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Translation Thief on the cross. Welcome home. Welcome home. Welcome home. God is not waiting for you to get your act together, that's a religious lie. For some, you feel like you have to get your act together, your stuff in order to finally come to God. Lie. God is actively pursuing you. He pursued you to the cross and he pursues you even now. In this moment, he's pursuing. His arms are not crossed. He's not a shamer. I can't believe you did that. He's a celebrator. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome home. It's the crucifixion that the nature of God has truly revealed. There were thousands of crucifixions in Rome, in the Roman Empire, hundreds on the hill called Skull just outside of Jerusalem. But there's only one crucifixion that has shaped and impacted all of human history, There's only one crucifixion that we even know the name of the person crucified. And here's why Good Friday was not the end of the story, but the beginning. The tomb is empty, and resurrection took place. See, all of Christianity hinges upon a single historical event. This is one of the things I love about Christianity, it differentiates it from all other religions in this way. You don't have to wade through philosophy. You don't have to wade through theology and kind of discern, is this true? In fact, this is so good. If you've been searching, if you've been wrestling, I, I can make your journey a lot quicker. If you've been kind of jumping from belief to belief, is all you have to do is examine the single historical event of the death and resurrection of Jesus. If he rose from the dead, then all that he said is true. If he didn't, it's a hoax. Leave it be. This is a waste of time. Even the Apostle Paul said that if Christ did not raise from the dead, it's a waste of time. Did you know that there's five historical facts that every major scholar, both skeptic, believer, atheist, or theist, believe actually happened? I can examine the evidence of the history of the resurrection. Every major uh, historian and scholar believes that Jesus was a literal person and died on a Roman cross, that he was effectively dead on that cross. Every person, scholar believes this, Jesus was buried in a tomb. They all agree on this, not only that he died on a cross and that he was buried on a tomb, but the tomb was empty. Now there's lots of theories about why the tomb's empty. Trying to figure out all these kind of well, how is the tomb empty? And did the disciples steal the body? That was like the first thing that the, even the religious leaders brought up in that day, which, I mean, they were deserters in the moment. They all agree on this: that the disciples believed that they saw the risen Jesus. They're not agreeing that the disciples saw the risen Jesus, they're just, they agree that the disciples believed they saw. That somehow, over 500 eyewitnesses had this mass hallucination. Even though it's never happened in the history of humanity, somehow at this moment that happens. It's the only other explanation. And that the disciples' transformation from cowards to courageous, from deserters to world changers, It's undeniable. When you look at the transformation of the disciples, when you look you see these men who in Jesus' deepest need and his greatest crisis desert him and run and flee, and they are hiding for their lives, and all of a sudden now these men will one day be crucified and killed and martyred for their belief that Jesus rose from the dead. And they say, we just simply testify to what we've seen. Plenty of people over the course of history have died for a lie. They just didn't know it was a lie. These men and the transformation, I just encourage you. Would you take a moment, if you're searching, if you're skeptical, if you've come in and felt like, man, this whole God thing I don't know about, just examine the historical evidence and come to a conclusion. The resurrection is what made the difference of the reason why we know this one man in an obscure part of the Roman Empire and shaped all of human history. he Wright says this, Jesus' death made all the difference in the world and all the difference to the world. Here's why. This is the gospel. Maybe you've heard that term. It just means good news. The good news that God isn't against you, but it's for you. The good news that God's actively pursuing you. The good news that when God showed up to the planet, he wasn't playing whack-a-mole. But he's pursuing the lost. He's pursuing the hurting. He's pursuing those that are far from him. This is the good news. God loves you. He's pursuing you. He took your sin and shame on the cross and defeated sin and death itself. By rising from the grave. And he's eagerly waiting, longing to welcome you home. The invitation of Jesus is not into a religion. And I understand there is religion-y Christians. That is not the Jesus way. The invitation of Jesus is into a personal relationship with your heavenly father, made possible by the finished work of his death and resurrection. Perhaps you showed up, and you were fooled by religion. You thought you needed to work your way to God, that God's angry, that his arms crossed, and he wanted nothing to do with you. And this morning, perhaps for the first time, you've heard that God loves you. That God's arms aren't crossed. He's not just tapping his toe and finally, like you finally got it right. You finally came to your senses. But maybe this morning you've come to your senses. Maybe this morning you realize God's arms aren't crossed. His arms are open wide and he's saying, would you come home? Welcome home. I'm celebrating your coming home. And Today, you just call out Jesus. step into life. You step into relationship with God. You step into who you were made to be. As we close, I, I would just like to pray and invite you to pray with me even for some today is the day of salvation today is the day of God searching and you're receiving and you've come to your senses and today is the day where you go like no 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 okay I'm stop I'm not running anymore I'm running to you Today's is the day when you said okay God I want you and you found out that God wanted you back would you just pray with me I just invite you just close your eyes, and if you're in the spot where you want to start a relationship with God, just pray this after me. And prayer just means to have a conversation with God. That's all. There's nothing mystical or magical about the prayer. It's just the, the honest heart conversation. Where you just simply say, Jesus, today, I want to start a relationship with you. I know that I'm a sinner. I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you came for me. You died on the cross and rose to the life for me. Today I give my life to you. Would you come into my life and make me new? Thank you for your love. Thank you for pursuing me. Thank you for welcoming me home. As we stay in a moment of prayer, a group this size, I can't help but think, man, God's been working. And if you're in a spot, and just encourage you to keep praying. For some, it's, it's a moment of returning to him. But if today you gave your life to Jesus, if today you started a relationship, I'd love just to know. If you just raise your hand, raise it high, let me see it. Today you stepped into life. Yes, amen. Very cool. Amen. Go ahead. Raise, keep it up so I can see it. Raise your hand. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. God, I just thank you for those in this room that gave their life to you. Like, like they've been welcomed home. And, and what we know and what we just read is, is heaven's throwing a freaking party right now. So we rejoice too. God, thank you. That you revealed who God really is and that you love us. May we be a church. God, may we be a church that are, are just simply other prodigals, welcoming prodigals home. Guard us from being religious. May we extend your love and grace to the city. Thank you for Jesus In his name.